there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Irene, Irene, honey, wake up. You're okay. It's just a dream. Oh, Aunt, Uncle, it felt so real. You gave us quite a scare. Are you okay? I'm, I'm sorry. It, it's this wretched dream that I keep having. It's terrifying. A figure in the dark hits me over the head again and again, no matter how much I plead. Shh, 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 shh. Try not to think about it. I'll bring you some calming tea. You'll be sound asleep in no time. Thank you, Auntie. Remember, we're not in the old country anymore. You're safe here. You're right, Uncle. It was just a dream. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is our first episode on Irene Isaac's murder in Scranton, Pennsylvania in June of 1968. This week, we'll cover Irene's early life, one of adversity and the American dream, but one that was ultimately cut short. Next week, we'll cover the decades-long search for her killer and the authorities' failure to properly investigate their primary suspect. On the evening of June 9, 1968, 25-year-old Irene Isaac, or Lala as her family lovingly called her, set out from Rochester, New York on the final leg of a road trip. She was on her way to Quebec City, Canada. If all went well, she would get a job teaching English to French-speaking students and begin a long-awaited chapter in her adult life, leaving her small-town life in Scranton, Pennsylvania behind for a place that would cater to her love of everything French. But Irene's journey would come to an abrupt and grisly end. In the early hours of June 10th, 1968, a New York State trooper patrolling a stretch of road near the Canadian border found Irene's lifeless body in a ravine. She was only feet from her abandoned Volkswagen bug, its lights still on and the passenger door left ajar. 
The ensuing investigation, which a private detective would later describe as botched, eventually went cold. Until 1998, when Irene's niece lobbied to have it reopened. But despite renewed interest in the case, her surviving family has yet to get justice and closure for their dear Lala, over 50 years after her violent death. Irene's father, Bodan Izek, was a priest of the Byzantine Rite. This Eastern Catholic Church permitted priests to have wives if they were married before being ordained. But in 1939, communist leaders in Ukraine began banning the open practice of religion. Rather than renounce his faith, Reverend Izak fled to the Carpathian Mountains, far away from his young family. For the next two years, he feared he would never see them again. Then, in late 1941, the Germans invaded Ukraine. Hoping they would allow him to practice his faith, Reverend Izak decided to return. The next year, on July 2, 1942, Irene Juliana Izak was born into a newly united family and a crumbling Ukraine. She was Bodan and Maria Izak's fifth child. She was pretty, with blue eyes and curly hair. Many compared her to a doll. Her nickname Lala is from the word Laka, Ukrainian for doll. Yet her life under Nazi rule proved to be far from normal. Although Reverend Isaac was given a new parish, his family's safety remained at risk. The Isaacs were hiding a Jewish family in the barn, and Reverend Isaac was secretly converting Jews to Catholicism to prevent their deportations. This precarious position lasted for nearly two years, until the Nazis' hold over the territory collapsed. With the impending arrival of the Russian army, war was at the Isaacs' doorstep. Andrew, Xenon, get your sisters and take cover under the table. Maria, children, is anyone hurt? We're fine, just frightened. How is it out there? Our home is one of the few spared. The rest have been destroyed or have caught fire. <laughs> we were spared today, but who knows tomorrow? We can't be here tomorrow. The Germans are on the move. It's only a matter of time before the Bolsheviks return. Where would we go? Like the rest of the village. We'll go west. In July of 1944, the Isaacs fled the Soviet army. For the next four years, they were refugees. They packed into cargo trains through Austria and Germany, depended on the kindness of strangers for food, and suffered through life-threatening illnesses. But young Irene's spirit and curiosity couldn't be kept down. As they shuttled from town to town, she taught herself how to read, eventually learning six languages. By April of 1945, the family of seven reached an American-occupied town in southern Germany. There, they sought aid from the American Red Cross and a local parish. However, after Maria and Zinan fell ill, it became immediately clear that this new place would not welcome them with open arms. Hey, Bolsheviks, get out of our town! <coughs> what was that? They put up a sign warning people there's typhoid in our home. <coughs> First they think us Soviets, now this? During his time there, Reverend Isaac reflected in his journal about the German town and the toll it took on his family. The local community, 
The parish priest and the parishioners do not look kindly at us. They only tolerate us because they must. We have already grown accustomed to this and have learned to bear it. In 1946, the Isaac family received hopeful news. One of Reverend Isaac's sisters lived in New York. She made arrangements to sponsor her brother and his family for a life-changing transatlantic crossing. In April of 1948, aboard an American military ship transporting refugees, the Isaacs got their first glimpse of New York Harbor. Like millions of immigrants before them, the Isaacs would now call this country home. It was the children that were most taken by the wonders of a rich land. Luba, then 12 years old, recalled her first impressions. We were close enough to the shore that we could see the lights. And the streetlights were strung like necklaces. Just beautiful. After taking a train to Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, the site of a distant cousin's church, they couldn't believe their eyes. They had arrived in the land of abundance. We couldn't believe it because we were looking at fruits and vegetables that were out in the open. Everything was open. All those years that we were escaping, we were always hungry and there was never enough food. We didn't know that people could eat so well. For the first time in years, the Isaacs had reached a place that gave them a sense of security. We've arrived. At last. I haven't heard such silence since... since... I can't remember when. I pray this isn't just a dream. Irene, come back here! Get away from that dog, it will bite you! <laughs> the dog's harmless. She shouldn't be running off like that. It's like she's learned nothing after all this time. We should be glad. Her soul remains pure, untainted by the horrors we've seen. Look at how happy she is with that dog. It's the first time I've seen such joy in her eyes. Maria, children, from now on we shall be nothing but laughs and smiles. Our stomachs will never go hungry again. This, I promise you. And for the next two decades, the Izak family did just that. They prospered in the local Ukrainian immigrant community. The children quickly adapted to the American way of life, especially Irene. They had every reason to believe the dark times were behind them. But the promise of the American dream would turn into Irene's nightmare. Coming up... Irene becomes an American girl with an independent streak and a thirst for adventure. Qualities that put her in the path of a killer. Now back to the story. Six-year-old Irene Isaac arrived in the United States in 1948. She picked up English with ease, was outgoing, and quick to make friends. Unlike the rest of her family, she was not as set in the ways of the old country— so it came as no surprise to her family that she was the most American of the bunch. Well, that's not to say that Irene and her siblings became average American kids. After all, their father was a Catholic priest, the leader of one of the only Byzantine Catholic churches in the area. And Reverend Isaac made sure that all his children received a religious education. He and Maria ensured that Irene and her siblings grew up quite sheltered. Irene attended an all-girls seminary academy from elementary school through college. 
When she wasn't in classes, she was at her father's church, St. Vladimir's. All the siblings were required to participate in church functions. The girls, Luba, Helen, and Irene, sang in the choir. The brothers, Andrew, Zinan, and the American-born Nicholas, served as altar boys. As the children of a priest, they had to lead by example. Irene, petite, barely five feet tall, came of age in the late 1950s and early 1960s, a time of youthful rebellion and free love. However, that attitude never reached her quiet Catholic campus. The Isaacs were strict parents. Dating was out of the question for Irene. First, because her father didn't permit it, and second, because no boy was brave enough to date the daughter of a priest. Well, nevertheless, Irene was the one responsible for introducing the Isaacs to American pop culture and dress, whether they liked it or not. Irene, what is this noise? It's rock and roll music, Dad. Come dance with Nicholas and I. <laughs> you call this music? <laughs> Sis, America has gone to your head. Just look at what you're wearing. <laughs> Don't argue, you two. But it's true. She's dressing like a man now. They're called blue jeans and anyone can wear them. Just don't wear them to church, please. Deal. Despite enjoying American culture, Irene found her true passion while in college. The French. After graduating in 1963, she made a bold decision. You're going where? To study at the Sorbonne. In Paris! Paris? Why so far? Because I love everything about it. The cafes, the history, the language. I know you like French, but I didn't think that you'd want to move there. Why would you want to go back to Europe? All we have is bad memories of that place. That was a long time ago. I hardly remember those years. That's probably for the best. What if the French don't treat you right? I remember how hostile Western Europe was to those of us from the East. You're forgetting that we are American now. Anyway, my French is so good they won't even notice I'm not a local. How long will you be gone? Only for the summer. Well, good luck convincing Mom and Dad to let you go. But Irene was determined. In the summer of 1964, she left home for the very first time and headed to the City of Lights. There, she discovered she wanted to be independent, a desire she would never be able to shake. Upon her return, Irene moved to Binghamton, New York, to take her very first teaching job. She was known to her students as a passionate teacher who demanded nothing but the best effort from them. Her French was so effortless, they believed she was French-Canadian. Canada was also on Irene's mind. She greatly desired to continue her own education and pursue a master's degree in Quebec, but she lacked the funds to do so. In Binghamton, her roommates noticed that Irene was becoming increasingly withdrawn and prone to moodiness. During the 1966 school year, she took a different teaching post, this time in Rochester, New York, right next to the Canadian border. In such close proximity to Canada, her goal of one day living there seemed within reach. Unbeknownst to those around her, Irene was also looking for an escape from a short-lived relationship. It wasn't until some time later that she wrote to a childhood friend of the heartbreak she had gone through at the end of 1966. We were madly in love, or so I thought. 
I even chose to spend the holidays with his family just to be near him. And then he broke things off. I didn't know that I could feel such pain. And now that I'm nearing 25, I'm starting to wonder if I'll ever marry. It might be too late for me now. Irene wanted a fresh start. After saving enough money to leave Rochester in 1967, she enrolled at Laval University in Quebec. She made new friends, spoke her beloved French, and found love a second time. Despite her chatty nature, Irene was very private about the relationship. All she ever told her sister Helen about this boy was that he was from Ontario. But after a seemingly idyllic year, he broke things off. Irene was so affected by this romantic disappointment, she could no longer focus on her courses. By May of 1968, at 25 years old, she was back home with her family in Scranton, deeply depressed. But being back home wasn't doing her any good. Irene, honey, you haven't had anything to eat all day. I'm not hungry. Why don't you go out with some friends? Catch a matinee. Anything to take your mind off things. I hate seeing you like this. It's not you. There's nothing for me here. My old friends are gone. My sisters are married. In Laval, there was always something to do. Someone to see. Then go back. You love it there. As much as I would like you near me, you're too young to be this miserable. I had to leave. I couldn't stomach the thought of running into him. I was such a fool thinking that he was the one. Listen to me. You've been through much worse. Once this passes, and trust me, it will, you'll regret leaving everything for some boy you barely remember. Irene then realized that despite the heartbreak that she'd suffered there, she missed Quebec. She didn't know if she could ever return, but she was sure of one thing. She had to leave Scranton. Irene decided to visit some family in Cleveland, Ohio. Maybe she could find a new job out there. After only a few days in her parents' home, Irene and her VW bug were ready to get back on the road for another adventure. All right, little sis. Everything checks out back here. It shouldn't give you any trouble on the road. Thanks, Andrew. I guess I'm all ready to go. Irene, it's so late. Why don't you wait until tomorrow morning? I don't like you driving at night. Your mother's right. There's no hurry. I prefer to drive at night. There's no traffic, and it makes for a quicker trip. Honestly, I've been on the road so many times, it's second nature to me. (sighs) We know there's no arguing with you once you've made up your mind. Give your aunt and uncle a kiss for me. And call us when you arrive. (laughs) I will, I will. The next morning, Irene arrived in Cleveland. She stayed with some of her relatives, the Kowalskis, but she soon grew bored in Cleveland. Irene showed no interest in job hunting or settling down in Cleveland. Although she did not voice it, her heart was still set on returning to Quebec. And it seemed like the universe would deliver on her wish. After about a week in Cleveland, Irene received a call from an acquaintance, Rosalie Bonko. Bonko alerted Irene to a school district in Charlebourg, Quebec, looking for an English teacher. Irene jumped at the opportunity. It was also around this time that Irene had an unsettling dream. 
someone snuck up from behind and bashed her over the head. This dream would later seem to be prophetic, but Irene was unfazed by its dark portents. She decided to make the journey north. In a June 8, 1968 letter to her cousin, Irene expressed her eagerness to be back in Canada. I need a job right now, and I'm not staying here in Cleveland for one. I've wasted too much time here already. I want my freedom back, my old way of living. With these few words, Irene revealed what Quebec meant to her, a freedom she had been unable to find anywhere else. She had given it up once because of heartbreak, but her love for the city was greater than her fear of awkward run-ins with an ex-boyfriend. As for the job that could bring her back to Quebec, Rosalie Bonco had mentioned that the school district would likely wrap up interviews by the end of the month. Irene didn't want to take any chances. On the morning of Sunday, June 9, 1968, George and Russell Kowalski washed their cousin's Volkswagen bug, guided her to the interstate in downtown Cleveland, and sent her on her way. Later that night, Irene made a brief stop in Rochester, New York. She visited her former roommate, Virginia Fitzmorris. But after only an hour, she wanted to get back on the road and continue north. Virginia suggested Irene stay the night and continue the next morning. Irene explained she was expected by a friend in Syracuse, who will call Nicole to protect her privacy. Irene assured Virginia that she would spend the night at Nicole's home. But when Irene arrived in Syracuse, her determination to reach Quebec got the better of her. This is Nicole. Hello, Nicole. It's Irene. Irene! Are you nearby? We have our guest room all warm and ready. And I know it's late, but I had some dinner set aside for you. After all that driving, you must have worked up an appetite. Actually, I'm calling to offer my apologies. I feel like such a terrible friend now, hearing that you've gone through all that trouble. What are you saying? You're not stopping by? I know it's extremely rude of me to cancel at the last minute, but I'm so pressed for time. It's best I push all the way to Quebec. Drive all night? In this weather? Irene, please, I insist that you stay over. Don't worry about me. I could drive this stretch of road blindfolded by now. And as much as I'd love to see you, Monday morning traffic would surely set me back. Well, I wish you luck. Although, I'm sure you'll get the job. Be safe out there, and don't light your cigarettes while you drive. (laughs) I better get going. Talk soon. It was this last-minute decision that sealed Irene's tragic fate. She would never make it to her interview. Coming up... We'll hear about Irene's final few hours and the possibility that Irene had met her killer before, that same night. And now, back to the story. In June of 1968, 25-year-old Irene Izak was looking for a new direction in life. After hearing about a job opportunity in Quebec, she set out on a road trip. She was supposed to stay with a friend in Syracuse, New York on the way, But instead, Irene continued fearlessly into the rainy night. She got on I-81 North. It was a familiar stretch of highway she had taken often. 
This likely offered her a sense of security despite the drizzle and increasingly lonely road. During the long drive, Irene scanned the radio stations for some of her favorite singers in lieu of the news, which had been especially grim after two major assassinations and the Vietnam War. After an hour's drive from Syracuse, she made a brief stop at a rest area outside of Watertown, New York, and spoke to an unknown person. Hi, it's me. During the investigation into her murder, the police were able to trace a call Irene made from a payphone hours before her untimely death. However, who she called remains a mystery, even to her family. For unknown reasons, the New York State Police has kept it under wraps for half a century. After finishing her mysterious call, Irene got back in her car and drove onto I-81. Not long after leaving the Watertown rest area, Irene spotted headlights approaching from behind. A dark blue car drove up beside her. Inside was 29-year-old state trooper David Hennigan. He turned on the unmarked car's dome light and popped on his Stetson. Irene realized he was a state trooper and pulled to the side of the road. At 1.50 a.m. on Monday, June 10th, 1968, Trooper Hennigan radioed in that he had pulled over a tan VW with New York tags. According to investigators who interviewed Hennigan, uh, the stop went something like this. Hello, officer. License and registration, miss? Of course. Here they are. It should all be in order. Can I ask why I've been stopped? Speeding. You were doing 75 miles per hour in a 65 zone. Was I? <laughs> I didn't realize. Miss Ezek? Yes. Where are you from? Scranton, Pennsylvania. And where are you headed? Charlebourg, Quebec. You have quite a drive ahead of you. Watch your speed. The rain makes for dangerous conditions. You're good to go. Uh, I'll be more careful. Thank you. Irene continued on the interstate towards the Thousand Islands Bridge near the U.S.-Canada border. For the 16 miles between the traffic stop and the bridge, Hennigan's car must have remained within Irene's sight. After all, both cars arrived at the bridge's toll booth around the same time, 2.09 a.m. As she paid her toll, Irene watched the blue car continue towards the bridge. The toll booth worker, retired Watertown cop Clifford F. Putnam, noticed an agitated Irene. Her hands were shaking as she paid the toll. One dollar, please. Uh, sorry, uh, just a second. I can't seem to get my purse to open. Here you go. Do you by chance have a lighter? I need a smoke. Sure do. You see that car about to drive over the bridge? Yeah. It's a trooper. Why do you suppose police would stop a car for no reason this late at night? I know there have been some robberies in vacant vacation homes lately. 
Wouldn't surprise me if the cops are on alert. I suppose. And so she crossed the bridge onto Wellesley Island. There, Interstate 81 narrowed and grew darker as it neared DeWolf Point State Park. It was along this desolate road, a mere mile from the Canadian border, that Irene pulled over for reasons that will never be known. At 2.35 a.m. on June 10th, Sergeant Gerald A. DeGroote received a call at the Watertown Police Headquarters. Irene's lifeless body was found lying face down in a ravine. Her blood pooled around her. The tan Volkswagen and its driver were immediately recognized by the officer who called it in, State Trooper David Hennigan, who had pulled her over less than an hour earlier. I've encountered what looks like a homicide a few yards off the I-81 extension in Wellesley Island at the entrance of the state park. The victim is possibly female. It was strange that Hedigan's report was unclear, and his conflicting statements of that night would make the case a challenge to solve. His statements, along with the New York State Police's efforts to keep certain parts of the investigation under wraps, led the Ezaks and even some cops to suspect the department of protecting one of their own. The case would span half a century worth of investigative work from police, private investigators, and a probing journalist, some of whom became consumed by the need to crack the mystery of Irene's death. In that time, they encountered powerful institutions that stonewalled the case, sought the involvement of the New York governor, and received an unexpected confession. All of that only marked the beginning of what would prove to be a whirlwind of an investigation. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the murder of Irene Izak. For more information on this case, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dave Champagne's book, The North Country Murder of Irene Izak, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carlene Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Edlin Ortiz with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, and Samantha Moore. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Unsolved.